I do all the reading of biographies that I can and uh, find them to be very instructive. Uh, years ago, I was encouraged as a young pastor to do so, and I've been reading Franklin Graham's um, book uh, on his father, Billy Graham, entitled Through My Father's Eyes. And he tells the story of when he was rather younger, uh, his uh, father caught him playing with matches. And he said, Franklin, don't let me ever catch you playing with matches again. Well, the next day, Franklin's playing with matches. And his daddy comes up to him and finds him again and says, I thought I told you never to play with matches again. He said, no, sir. You said, never let me catch you playing with matches. And he spun around and ran. So his dad couldn't catch him. Get it? His dad couldn't catch him. Because uh, uh, younger as he was, Franklin was much uh, quicker than his dad. Let me ask you, does it surprise you that a um, uh, high-profile and uh, godly family like Billy Graham's family would have uh, problems? I-, I want to tell you, my family has had a challenging week. It began off rather, rather good, rather well. I was chairman of the Resolutions Committee for the Georgia Baptist Convention, and we passed a resolution on religious liberty, which uh, armed our lobbyist to Atlanta uh, to petition for that and take a strong stand. And when you've got a million Baptists that are on board with something, uh, that uh, a million Baptists in one state at least, that's a very helpful thing. And so we, we took a stand there, and, and we had a marvelous uh, convention. We uh, flew to uh, Indiantown, Florida to work with our partners there and expanding our mission action. And there's just some neat things that have taken place in that place, and I can't go into too much detail. I will tell more around the offering about that, about the fruit of the work that uh, we've been able to do there, but we made tremendous progress this week in the Great Commission. And what I've discovered through the years is that when you make progress in these areas, legislatively, or you make progress in missions and evangelism, there's usually a satanic counterattack. And uh, we've experienced that at various levels this particular week. For the first time in my life, in all the years I've flown and all the years I've traveled, uh, I um, lost my laptop at security this week. Now, I recovered it when I got back, but I've never, ever lost anything going through a security checkpoint. But I did this particular week. And uh, then this week, uh, the, uh, we've got a family member that's struggling uh, with a loss of vision in an eye, and uh, it became rather acute this week. And we're, doctors are afraid of a chronic uh, autoimmune problem there. Uh, we uh, were able to get in to see doctors real quickly and we'll go back uh, to the Emory Eye Center in about two weeks uh, with that. Uh, but that was quite a blow. We were praying about it last night and a very large, about, well, a very large water bug crawled up the curtains as we were praying, right before we started praying. Uh, that happened. And then last night, our car was broken into, and uh, things were taken, and things were stolen while there. Now, the most insulting thing about that is that my Texas A&M paraphernalia was not taken. <laughs> and, the, and the Tennessee stuff wasn't taken either. Were you insulted by that? Yeah. No words. No words. No words to describe it. But about every time we as a church make progress in the Great Commission, there's oftentimes a counterattack from the enemy. And uh, again, I've told you through the years, I don't believe like some of my Christian friends that there are demons in every corner 
I'm not like uh, my liberal friends who don't believe in such a thing. I believe like Jesus did. And if Jesus believed in that, I'm certainly going to. I don't think you get any better in your view of doctrine and theology and the world, the spirit world, uh, than, than you do Jesus. Jesus is always right. Uh, and so because I take Christ's approach, I don't believe there's a demon in every corner. I don't believe there aren't, uh, that there are no demons. I think there's probably a demon in every other corner is uh, where I come down with that. And we've met a few this week, to be quite honest with you. And I, I anticipate that as we go towards and head towards Merry Christmas Athens, where we get loud and proud about the name of Jesus and exalt his name uh, in our community in many ways as we do mission projects and a great uh, worship uh, presentation uh, Sunday evening, December the 9th, uh, I believe that we will experience that even more. That's why this passage in Ephesians 3 is so helpful. Here the Apostle Paul is praying for the Ephesian Christians as they are on mission with Christ in their location. Now a couple of things I want you to know about prayer. One is this. The life that you now have is the life that you prayed for. The life that you now have is the fruit of your prayers. You have the life now that you prayed for. You have the life for which you prayed right now. Your marriage, your marriage is what you've prayed for. Your children and family are what you've prayed for. Your walk with God is what you've prayed for. Now you may be thinking, hold on just a minute, then prayer doesn't work. Well, how do you know? If you hadn't prayed, it would probably be worse. Can you imagine that? I mean, things can be worse. And the fact that you've prayed has probably kept them from being worse. So don't get discouraged by prayer. Be encouraged by prayer. If you had not prayed, it would probably be worse. And the thing that I, I particularly understand is that most of God's children need to add more time and more fasting to their prayers, doctor allowing and health allowing. And that's where we begin to have some victory. We need to begin to share our prayer request more, and we need to pray together more. That's uh, vitally important, and that's particularly what's taking place in this text in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 12. Now, there's a second thing I want you to know about prayer, and that is you will never do anything better than you pray. Prayer will be the ceiling of your life, and your walk, and your effectiveness in your service. Prayer will be the best thing that you do. You will never do anything better than you pray. You, you won't teach better than you pray. You won't witness better than you pray. Uh, you, won't, um, overcome, you won't deal with temptation better than you pray. Prayer will be the best thing that you do. And so it's incumbent upon us to lift the ceiling on prayer because prayer is not a fake ceiling, a false ceiling. It's not a thatched ceiling. It is a cement ceiling, reinforced. Prayer is the best thing that you and I will ever do. We'll never do anything better than pray. Now, as a result of this message, I'm hoping that will come out of this, is that you will have rapturous, thunderous gratitude given to God at Thanksgiving. Your thanksgiving will be met with a great gratitude unto God. And that uh, as we engage in Merry Christmas Athens, that we will dedicate ourselves and commit ourselves to praying. 
And, and, and as a result of that, I hope that you, what you will do is that you'll pray for one another and that you will enlist others to pray for you. This is particularly what's happening in this passage. The Apostle Paul is not praying for himself, although I'm sure he prayed about these things. The Apostle Paul is praying for others, and in chapter 6, we'll ask them to pray for him. Now, what Paul does here is that he advances the mission of Christ, the eternal purpose of God, spoken of in verse 11, in the lives and ministry of the Ephesians, by prayer. He advances the mission by prayer. And uh, S.D. Gordon said this in particular. He said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. If you don't get serious about prayer, if you don't grow in your prayer life, your walk with God, you're going to meet an awful lot of obstacles through which you cannot penetrate. You will find yourself defeated. You'll get stuck personally with something and not be able to break through. If you do not expand and grow your prayer life before God by enlisting others to pray for you and pray for others, then you're going to find yourself frustrated and defeated and discouraged at times and maybe even doubting God. We've got to give ourselves more and more to prayer. So I've got to tell you, with the difficult week I've had and my intention to have even more emphasis and future emphasis on the Great Commission, my, my, my approach is not to run, but to reload. And, and so I'm, I'm going to add more fasting. I'm going to add more prayer time. I'm going to gather more to pray for my family and for me. Uh, we've got a big bullseye on our back. You do too. Ours is particularly large because of the position that I occupy. But we don't run. We don't retreat. We reload. And we re-engage because souls depend on it. People are dying and perishing at an alarming and increasingly alarming rate around the globe. And Beach Haven's going to do something about it. And one thing we're not going to do is be internally focused and afraid of change and afraid of forward progress. Instead, we're going to move forward for Jesus Christ. But we've got to have a powerful, robust, growing intercessory prayer ministry where we enlist others to pray for us and where we pray for one another. And so I think S.D. Gordon is entirely right. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. So how is it that I can have an effective prayer life? Well, let's read beginning in verse number 12, what Paul did for the Ephesians, and I think we can take instruction from that. He's speaking of Jesus Christ, and in verse 12, he says of Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. Literally, His faithfulness. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is for your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So how can I have an effective, growing prayer life? Well, first... Trust 
the promise of access. That's verses 12 and 13. Trust the promise of access. Now, Paul here piles one word on top of another. And one thing he speaks of here is the path of the promise. In whom, speaking of Jesus Christ, in Christ we have access to the throne of God. Only Jesus Christ can bring us to the Father. Our sincerity cannot, our virtue cannot, another world religion cannot, even the wrong version of the Christian faith cannot. Only Jesus Christ can bring us to the Father. He said of himself, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes into the Father except through me. Christ and Christ alone. You've got to know that Christ is in your heart and life, that you know him that you have been saved by grace, that when you die, you have an immediate welcome and an abundant entrance into heaven. You don't have any doubt about that at all. You've got to come to God through Jesus Christ. There's no way, other way to get to God in prayer. There's no way to get to God's wisdom. There's no way to get to God's heaven except through Jesus Christ. This is the path of the promise of access. And at the end of our service, we'll give you the opportunity to open your heart to Jesus Christ and say yes to Him so that you can have all that this text speaks of and the other text in the Scripture. So there's the path. But then there is the possession. Look what it says in verse 12. In Christ, or in whom, we have boldness and access. Currently, we have it. We're not waiting for it. There's not some kind of personal virtue improvement that we've got to engage in. Our performance does not have to get better. If we're in Jesus Christ, we have got it. We've got it permanently. We've got it forever. We've got it when we're high. We've got it when we're low. We've got it when we're rejoicing. We've got it when we are beleaguered. We've got it when it's going well. We've got it when it goes sour. We've got it in Jesus Christ. We presently possess it. We can reach God anytime we call on His name. That is the possession. Uh, in fact, you can be in a heaven, you can be in heaven for a million years and still not have more of God then than you do now. All of God that you'll ever need, all of His presence, all of His attention, all of His affections, all of His love, You've got as much now as if you'd been in heaven a million years. You'll have no more then than you do now. It's time to bank on it. That's the possession. But then there's the posture. It says, in whom we have, and look how he piles one word on top of another. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence. Well, boldness is access with confidence. In other words, you approach God as if you belong there. So of course, we want you humble. And God does too. He wants you dependent. But you are a child of God, run and rush towards his throne. Uh, he, he, he encourages all of us that know Christ. Call unto me, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. In Jeremiah 33, 3. This is the posture at which we approach God. We, we, we don't walk in slovenly. Uh, we, we don't walk in timidly. We come to the throne, and I know there's a king on the throne, but that king on the throne is my heavenly father, and he wants me there. Oh, and the remarkable things that he's done to get me there. He slaughtered his only begotten son to make that way of access free and possible, according to the previous chapter in verse number 13. Jesus has shed his blood to give us access unto the Father. 
And so that's the posture at which we approach God. And, and then look at the platform. Look what it says. We have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. Now the translators are uh, divided on how to translate this passage, but I've read it myself and it's rather clear. It's not only through our faith in Him, which is very important. We need to trust Him. We need to trust the promise of access. But the text actually puts Him at the end of the verse. It should read, we have boldness and access and confidence through His faithfulness. Jesus Christ was faithful to the Father, and so He purchased a position for us with Him. And so our approach to God the Father is not based upon our faithfulness. It's based upon Jesus' faithfulness. And listen, as long as the Father has respect for the Son's faithfulness, you've got a place near Him is what you have. It's based upon the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was perfect. And so whenever you go before God, God the Father receives you with as much favor and with as much intention and attention to love you and embrace you as He does His only begotten Son. Now, we don't become Him, of course, but He elevates us to that position. And that's what He gives to His children. That's the platform of the promise. Not your behavior, not your performance, but His. And quite frankly, I'm pretty impressed with Jesus, aren't you? That gives me encouragement to go before Him and to seek Him. And here's the priority of it. In verse 13, Therefore I ask you that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. In other words, I'm suffering in this prison where Paul, from where Paul is writing. I've endured an awful lot, even when I was in Ephesus with you. I've gone through tribulation. Don't get discouraged. Don't let that cool your prayers. It's not that God doesn't answer prayer, therefore I'm in prison. It's that God does answer prayer, therefore I'm in prison. God wants you near Him, therefore I'm in prison. I'm tolerating and enduring these things for you and on your behalf. Listen, do you know how important it is to God for you to get near to Him? Do you know how important it is for you to come up next to Him and to walk with Him and to dwell with Him for all eternity? Not only did His Son die on the cross to secure that, but God has put missionaries and pastors and evangelists and others in harm's way just to get the message to you. Oh, the stress and the struggle and the strain and the striving and the difficulty that they've experienced through the years and the decades in order to deliver the children of God in the presence of Almighty God, God is willing to hurt one of His own people to get you next to Him. Don't be discouraged for this. This is on your behalf and it's for your glory or your rejoicing. Trust the promise of access. So God's eternal purpose has been to get you next to Him. In the Old Testament, He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sinned and fell, He would meet with the patriarchs near an altar. And then when the children of Israel came out of Israel, He would meet with them in a tabernacle. And then later a temple. And then He came to earth and walked with them in a limited way after that. But since then, those that receive Him receive Christ's very own presence in their heart and life with the Holy Spirit, and now God walks with them. But later one day, when we see Him face to face, we will actually walk with Him in the presence of God. This is a priority with God. 
that you walk with him. He's paved the way. He wants you to have access with him. I think I told you a few years ago about the time when I was pastoring in Alabama how I invited President Bush to come speak at my church. I'm that audacious. I'll do it. I mean, why in the world would you not want to come speak to us is, is my attitude. Uh, but um, I invited him. It was right after September the 11th. And I had some opportunities for some connections. Uh, a lady that was on the pastor search committee, Nanette Reeves, was the administrative assistant for an attorney in Columbus, Georgia. And uh, he uh, was president of the American Bar Association that year. And uh, he knew the scheduling officer uh, in the White House that was serving the president. And so I spoke to Nanette, and uh, she's the one that suggested I invite the president. And so I said, well, would you make contact with your boss and see if he can make contact there and communicate and tell me the best way to uh, communicate with the White House to invite the president to come speak and how, you know, tutor me in how to write the letter. And, and uh, she agreed to do that. Well, one thing after another led to another, and there were some phone calls made. And back in that day, the early days of email in churches at least, those were sent. And um, after about 13 or 14 months, someone finally told me, here's how you write the letter. And so I composed the letter. And I sent it to the deputy scheduling officer. And in about two months or so, I got a nice two-page letter that said no. Uh, the president's schedule, uh, and a variety of other things. Essentially, your crowd's not big enough. The president can't get there, okay? Uh, and uh, that, that, that's how that went. But I want you to understand that the president took, or the scheduling officer, took two pages to say no. In this text, he's taken one sentence to say yes. In those two pages, I still didn't make a connection. This one sentence, I make a connection with the living God. All because of Jesus Christ. And the difficulty I had in connecting with the President of the United States, a mere man, I've never had that difficulty connecting with God. Never one time. Every time I've called upon Him, He's been there. Every time I've voiced His name, He's answered. All the attention of heaven is placed upon just little old me when I seek God and pray. And thus it is with every child of God, just a sigh, just, just, a, just a sound, just a whimper. Even a tear is precious music in the ears of Almighty God in heaven when you cry out to Him and when you pray. Trust the promise of access. Really believe that you've got access through Jesus Christ in God. There's a second thing to trust as well, and that is not only trust the promise of access, but trust the petitions of access. There's certain things you'll want to pray for others and have others pray for you about as well when you seek Him and speak with Him. And I want you to notice uh, three things about these. In verse 15, the urgency, and then verse 16, the universality, and then verse, um, uh, excuse me, verse 14, the urgency, verse 15, the universality, in verse 16 through 19, they're in limited nature. Uh, the urgency is in verse number 14. He said, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, most Jewish men would not do that. Most Jewish men would stand when they pray, much like you've seen uh, our Jewish friends pray at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. They would stand. But here in this text, Paul is so burdened in prayer 
that he bends his knee in a dirty, dank jail, a prison, and pleads with the Ephesians. He's trying to tell us this is important. This is urgent. But then look at verse 15, the universality. Every child of God anywhere on the planet can seek the Lord in verse number 15. From whom the whole family, or from his whole family, like the NIV says, from his whole family in heaven and earth is named. In other words, every child of God has authorization with the name of Jesus Christ to get before the Father. It's universal. And it doesn't matter how high or how low you are, how in or how out, how happy or how sad, how burdened, uh, how afflicted, how blessed. You can reach the Father if you know Jesus Christ is Savior. But then look at the unlimited nature of these things. There are four requests in verses 16 to 19. And they have something in common that harkens back to verse 8 of chapter 3. They are all unlimited in nature. Now, in chapter 3, verse 8, the apostle has said, God has given me the opportunity to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And here in verses 16 to 19, he explains some of the unsearchable riches of Christ. He uses these great, large terms to describe each of the requests. For example, in verse number 16, He would grant you according to the riches of His glory, strength. According to the riches of His glory, strength. That's unlimited strength. In other words, God doesn't give you strength just to get by. He gives strength that are in proportion to the riches of His glory. Now let me ask you something. Just how rich is His glory? Just how rich is the glory of God? Well, he says, I'm going to give you strength in proportion to those riches. So you don't merely squeak by. It's not like you kick a field goal with three seconds left in the fourth quarter and just barely win the game. It means you're up 48 to 0 by the end of the first quarter. Romans 8:37 says, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, whether that's your experience or not is irrelevant to the truth of that passage. That's what the text says. So unlimited strength. If you can imagine a weightlifter, an Olympic weightlifter, have you ever seen them in the Summer Olympics attempting to lift weights? I mean, they're very impressive and very built, but they are lifting weight to the extent of their strength. And despite how well they're trained, and despite their status as Olympic athletes, they still strain to lift their weight. Can you imagine one of them coming up with merely a pinky finger, lifting it up and holding it and balancing it at the end of his pinky finger? That is the kind of strength God wants you to have by the Holy Spirit in your inner person. So there's unlimited strength. Pray for others and get others to pray for you for unlimited strength. Believe and trust this request. This is really what you need unlimited strength. But that's not all. There's also unlimited comfort that the condition of your heart would be such that Jesus Christ would have unlimited comfort living in your heart. Verse 17, look there. It says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now the word dwell is the Greek word oikos with the preposition attached to the front of it. Oikos means home. And the preposition intensifies it. What Paul is saying, I'm praying for you that Jesus would really be at home. He would be settled. 
Not bouncing around like the patriarchs in their tents, but he would be settled in you like the temple is settled in Jerusalem. And even more so, he would be settled in your hearts by faith. Uh, You you could uh, translate this, in fact, uh, with the preposition kata in front of the word house, down home. That Jesus would be down home in your heart by faith. Let me ask you something. Do you like for guests to show up your home, at your home unannounced? Do you like that? So some of you do. Some of you, it scares the daylights out of you. You know why? Because you don't ever feel like your house is clean enough. And you'd be embarrassed. Now, most of us just walk in anyway, and we're quite impressed. But you, you feel a little different. When I was younger, we kept our house big and spam. We had six of us that were constantly working on it. My father was a naval officer, my mother a school teacher. And so we had the discipline of the school teacher and we had the order of a military officer applied to that. And so we had people constantly in our house. And so it wasn't that big of a deal uh, to, to us. We were always ready for people to come by and to visit with us. Now, if you're not, don't feel guilty about that, not trying to shame you or uh, anything. But the truth is, is that our hearts are Christ's home. And we want Jesus to be as comfortable in our hearts and lives as is possible. We want the condition of our hearts to be comfortable for Him. And this is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians. That Jesus would be at peace and that He would be welcome and settled in the home of our hearts. That He would never want to remove anything from the living room of our entertainments. He wouldn't want to ever clean up anything about the kitchen of our appetites. That that there isn't anything hidden in a closet that would displease Him. That every room and every crevice of the home is perfectly comfortable for Him. Listen, is Jesus Christ comfortable in your heart? Listen, if you struggle with that, get others to pray for you and pray for others that their heart would be a place where Jesus has unlimited comfort in their heart. So there's unlimited strength. There's unlimited comfort. But then there is also uh, unlimited, um, there's unlimited love. Verses 18 through uh, 19. Look what it says. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes all knowledge. In other words, every moment of your life, in every experience of your life, you come to the conclusion that God loves you. That you're able to see that every sorrow, that every disappointment, that every heartache, that every break, every burden, every unpleasant and surprising announcement and bit of news, especially that which is personal to you, somehow manifest the love of God. 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says of us that we are to do all things in love. Well, beloved, if God wants us to do all things in love, don't you think that God does all things in love? That you would know the love of Jesus Christ that somehow every joy and every sorrow, every fulfillment of wish, every disappointment, Every single experience manifests the love of God. My bride and I had this conversation when we were, um, uh, soon after we were first married. She is a mountain girl from the mountains of Tennessee, East Tennessee. 
And folks from East Tennessee, when they move from the mountains, really struggle with it. It's difficult. I mean, of course, I would too. If you were born in the Garden of Eden, you'd have a hard time leaving. And that was especially true in a replica of the moon that they call Texas. I mean, it's the moon, especially in the winter. And it can be quite disappointing to someone that came up in the Garden of Eden. Now, I like it, but it was quite a challenge for, for her. And I had to remind her sometime, I had to say, listen, you've got to understand, the very best thing for you at this time in your life is not to be there, but right here. Because God does all things in love. Well, I don't understand that. Hey, he didn't ask you to understand it. You trust him. And until you trust him, it's going to burden you and bother you. You trust that God does all things in love. So you know the width, the height, the depth, the breadth of the love of God. In other words, there is not an expanse. There's not a step. There's not a place. There's not a, a journey. There's not a circumstance. There's not a situation where God's love does not meet you. I know. I know. I hear you. I understand. I understand what you're saying. You're, you're mentally throwing up all of these exceptions. There aren't any exceptions. There are no exceptions. God does all things in love. And you embrace that. Now, that's not to say everybody else does. But he does. Unlimited love. And then look here in verse number 19, at the end of verse 19. There's a fourth request. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. Hey, listen to me. Your heart is going to demand to be filled. And if you don't fill it, it will complain, it will protest, it will roar. You will have to fill your heart with something. I know of some that have looked at the temptation to fill themselves up with the bottom of a Jack Daniels bottle. I know some that have been tempted to fill themselves up with some illegal or prescription drug. Or another romantic relationship. Or arrogance, pride, pushiness, ambition, work, money, sex, food. Has it occurred to you? It doesn't matter what it is on the earth. People will pursue it to fill themselves up. Entertainment. A screen. Your heart, your soul will demand to be filled. And anything less than the fullness of God is going to leave you so hungry. You may be filled for a moment with all these other things. But even family, even a marriage cannot fill you the way Almighty God can. In fact, listen, if you're single open to marriage, you think that's God's future for you, please don't get married expecting a spouse to fill you up. You can't place that expectation on someone else. You can't. A spouse cannot meet all of your needs. There's no way because that person isn't God. You can't place that spouse in the position of Almighty God. You've got to walk with 
God. And what Paul is saying here is, is that if you know Christ, you have access to the Father, you can pursue Him, and He can give you a fullness where even in the most deprived of circumstances, you can be filled. And I've got a gazillion illustrations, but I'm running out of time. Unlimited fullness, unsearchable, unfathomable fullness because Jesus Christ is in your life. God can do it. God can fill you like others cannot. And so here, this text urges us to intercede for other people like Paul and to gather others to pray for us like the Ephesians. That's got to be a priority. Now, I'm assuming then in this message that you have access to God through Jesus Christ, that you can reach Him. But if you haven't, I've got good news for you. Jesus will introduce you to His Father and bring you into a permanent walk with Him that you will never, ever lose because of His grace. But you've got to get there the right way. Your behavior, your performance, your virtue, your works, self-confidence, all of these other things are a map in the wrong direction. I like to collect globes, by the way. And uh, they're given to me usually birthdays and Christmases. I've got quite a collection uh, of them in my office and a few at home, in fact. But it's interesting. You can tell world history by looking at a globe. I have one from 1963. And so it still has the nation of Yugoslavia on it. You know, Yugoslavia that produced the worst car in the whole world, the Ford Yugo? Yeah. Uh, well, if I were to take that as an indicator of how I should travel in Europe this year, if I were to go this year or next year, I could use that globe as a map and I would never arrive at the destination where I needed to go. The map is out of date and it's frankly incorrect. Yugoslavia has uh, been replaced by uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Croatia, and Albania. It's been replaced by those three nations. Well, that's not even on the map. You've got to make sure that the map that you have in your soul actually gets you to God, and the way to do that is only through Jesus Christ. And that's why some of you don't have access to the Father. You feel like God is distant. You've never felt close to Him. You may admire Him. You may believe His Word. You may like churches, but you've never really connected with God. The way to do that is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Speaking of travel and explaining repentance, uh, the Bible says that we are to repent and return that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. I, I remember uh, a couple of years ago, I was traveling through an airport and uh, I needed to stop for just a moment and I went to the men's room, but when I got there, it wasn't the men room, men's room at all, it was the ladies' room. There was no one in there that I could tell and so I immediately turned around and left and went looking for the men's room. That is, in a sense, repentance. Well, I didn't expect that reaction. But uh, without Christ, you are in the wrong place. Get it? You're in the wrong place. Uh, I've lost you. You're in the wrong place. You need to turn around and go someplace else. And so if you look carefully at signs in airports, they'll direct you to where you need to go. First thing I do when I get off an airplane is I look for the baggage claim sign because usually it's next to transportation and I need to see that. 
as well. And baggage claim is uh, in big letters and big signs. Jesus gave a big sign to the world when he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And those signs have never misled me when I paid attention to them, at least. And Jesus will never mislead you. Today, you need to repent and trust his gospel, his death and resurrection on the cross, that that will bring you into a connection, an eternal connection, with all the benefits and gifts of this text. And we want you to have that now. I'm going to pray for you. And after I pray for you, we're going to ask you to come. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat and meet a staff member here and say, it's time for me to come to Jesus Christ. I've got direction from the Word. I know what to do. I'm repenting and placing faith in the cross and resurrection of Christ. There may be some other need that you have. You, you may need to become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church this morning. Maybe God uh, is working in your life for ministry or missionary service. Or it may be, indeed, that, um, that uh, you need to follow Christ in baptism. Would you quickly stand with me, please? Let's pray together, and you do serious business with God this morning.